This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Every day we try to wrap our heads around new COVID-19 information. Some of it good, some bad, some confusing. Booster shots and who's now eligible. The Ford government announcing it will not mandate COVID-19 vaccines for hospital workers. Drug makers Merck and Pfizer unveiling antiviral pills. Sudbury reintroducing some pandemic restrictions in light of record numbers of virus outbreaks and the scientific director of Ontario Science Advisory Table claiming we are back in the fourth wave. Colin Furness is an infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor, faculty of information, U of T. He joins us now on the feed. Good to have you with us, Colin. Good day, thank you. So a rather startling pronouncement by the scientific director of Ontario's Science Advisory Table earlier this week claiming that we're back in the fourth wave. What do you think he meant by that, and are we? indeed back in the fourth wave? I think that's a fair assessment. Some people might say, no, this is a different wave, but I think that's semantics. We're seeing an increase. When we see a sustained increase, then, you know, to me, that does say wave. And it is, it is exactly, I think, what we could expect and could have and should have expected, given that we're opening up, given that we are decreasing restrictions everywhere, where despite high vaccination rates, restrictions have been limited or, sorry, released, uh, COVID rates have come up. So we're really just behaving the same way as everybody else. So, you know, he tends to shoot from the lip and he kind of goes away from what I believe the majority of the science table is thinking. Is it fair to hear that kind of information as we are trying so hard to emerge from this pandemic? Well, I think Dr. Uni has pose some difficulties for us in some ways. He has not pushed the science table to acknowledge airborne spread. And they sometimes use the word air, sometimes they use the word spread, but they don't actually come out and say, we've got to deal with this as an airborne pathogen. And that's a problem. Uh, He also on his own endorsed, I mean, really endorsed and vigorously defended the idea that we could and should have full capacity sports stadiums. And I, you know, to me, that's a that's a gigantic mistake. And my only conclusion is he's never been to a stadium game because I don't think anyone who has could possibly imagine that safe. So he's he's kind of set the table for us to get into this situation. And and then of course he is calling it, I think, correctly that yes, we're we're back in this wave, but we shouldn't be surprised. And we're hearing from certain public health units, including Sudbury, uh, they announced earlier in the week that they'd be reintroducing capacity limits, requiring masking at organized public events, and looking for uh, proof of vaccination for youth sports. So it's kind of a step back, but it seems to be, on, on f- from their perspective, necessary. Are we going backwards? I don't think we're going backwards. Actually, I really support the idea of local interventions. I really like the idea, and always have, of conceiving and implementing public health fairly locally. What Sudbury needs right now is not necessarily what Aurelia needs or Toronto needs or London needs. So I think being able to respond to local conditions, the the good public health people in Sudbury, have they dealt with spikes before? They've done it very effectively. If they're being data-driven, if they're looking at where the infections are happening, 
and can institute some new local rules to, to push that back. I think that that counts to me as a smart, effective, measured response. Interesting. I'm going to paraphrase a quote from uh, Sudbury Public Health, one of their doctors. We are implementing these precautions as a circuit breaker to avoid any need for more drastic measures. Circuit breaker, interesting use of words. That's been a fashionable term for a while now, and the idea is if we can just vigorously interrupt social contact, if we can really just disrupt that for a few weeks, we can bring case counts back down. It works on paper, but it doesn't work as well as it ought to. And the reason for that is that if you look at all the exemptions for circuit breakers, kids are still going to school, essential workers are still going to work, many businesses are still open. And of course, people who are determined to ignore these things, people who don't believe COVID exists or who feel that it's a pandemic or a conspiracy, they're going to find ways to continue engaging in risky behaviors. So, all, you know, the, the ship is very leaky. The, the circuit breaker ship is very, very leaky. And I'm not saying that they're a terrible idea, but they, they never work as well as advertised. That said, if Sudbury is doing this, it's because Sudbury needs to. And so, you know, in that sense, they, they really do have my support and best wishes for it. They've done a great job of pushing back increases in the past. Ontario, the government will not be mandating COVID-19 vaccines for hospital workers. What message is being sent by this? That's a terrible, terrible mistake. And it, it, it actually, it's, it's a culmination of a lot of mistakes. We might ask, why have medical and nursing and allied health schools, professional training schools, not required vaccination as a, as a condition of being admitted? This shouldn't even be a problem. This should have been solved years ago when people make the choice. Do I want to enter this occupation? If so, I need to be okay with vaccination. So we, we need to do some soul searching about, about our attitudes toward public health that have actually created over many years, created this crisis. But at the same time, this is a this is a right wing government that doesn't want to mandate things. They don't want to push people around. And the 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 start, the start choice has been presented as you either have to let everyone do what they want, or you have to fire people if they don't get vaccinated. Nowhere has there been any conversation of the middle ground, which is not to frame this as your job depends on forcible injection, which I think is a very objectionable statement to very many people. Instead, we could say, look, this is a public safety issue. If your job involves contact with patients in a hospital or, or heck, you know, uh, teachers and kids in a classroom, same, same kind of idea. If you have that kind of contact with someone who's vulnerable, you need to be vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, we need to reassign you. You need to do a different job where you're not going to have contact with people who are vulnerable. That frames it not as we're going to threaten your livelihood. It frames it as we have vulnerable people to protect and we're going to protect them regardless of what you want to do. And so if a nurse ends up spending, you know, a few days, weeks, or, or even months working in the kitchen or working in the laundry, you know, they may decide that maybe vaccination is a better idea. So you, you don't fire people, you give everybody agency, but you also do the main thing, which is to protect the vulnerable by simply walking away from this question altogether and saying, we're not going to mandate vaccination for healthcare workers. The Ford government creates a dangerous situation. And it's been pointed out by many people smarter than me that you can, you need to be vaccinated to walk into a restaurant, but not to walk into an operating room. And that just doesn't make sense to anybody. And how do you think anti-vaxxers or people sitting on the fence feel about this? Does it not give them then license to say, well, you know, if, if hospital workers don't have to be vaccinated, then I'm not going to get the vaccination or I stand by my decision not to be vaccinated? I think there would definitely be some that way. I think when you force vaccination, you create even more anti-vaxxers. So it's, that, that's actually really, really 
it's complicated. We can also say that I think there's there's a number of different motivations or categories of people who are unvaccinated. Some are absolute, just staunch. They don't want it. Some are afraid of needles. Some don't think that it's necessary. Some have become frightened by some of the discourse in social media. So you have all these different motivations going on and you need different strategies to try and address those. So I don't, I don't think it's, it's just as simple as saying a vaccine mandate would be better or worse for anti-vaxxers. That, that's a, it's a complicated problem, there's no question. A lot of businesses and industries in Ontario are struggling now with a lack of employees because of this uh, this issue about not being able to prove that you've been vaccinated or the desire not to be vaccinated to keep your job. Do you think at some point the Ontario government might cave on their decision? I hope they don't. You know, I, I think it's it's we we really want to keep up social pressure. Uh, to to get people to look at vaccination as an important as a civic duty at the very least, but our our population, if we look at people over twelve, you know, in Toronto, we're at just about at ninety percent. So it seems to me that labor shortage just can't be entirely attributed to that ten percent. If vaccination rates were at fifty percent, we might say, okay, you know, half the workforce is not going along with this. But actually, most people are. So I, I don't see, and I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an economist, and you know, there's, there's lots I don't know about this. But it seems to me that if the overwhelming majority of people are vaccinated, that labor disruption shouldn't be a giant issue here. Let's talk about the booster shot. This is an effort to keep people protected. So it does beg the question: in some cases, the first two shots are they effective? Are they long lasting? And those who had AstraZeneca one and two, they're very confused about why they need to have a booster shot. What we discover over time requires time to discover, right? So what we knew last summer uh, when we were starting to do vaccination and starting to really promote vaccination and do it widespread, we we had the optimistic belief that this was a two-dose vaccine, that the mRNA vaccines are excellent. And it turns out that immunity does start to wane, and, wane and, and we had to discover that. The the AstraZeneca situation is simply that it's a, it's a very good vaccine, but it's not nearly as good as the mRNA ones. And it's particularly weak against the South Africa variant, which we don't hear much about because it's not really circulating here, but it's just, it's not as great a vaccine. So if we look at population protection, it makes sense to prioritize people who've had AstraZeneca with Pfizer. And, you know, I'm, I'm a hybrid person myself. My first shot was AstraZeneca. My second one was Moderna. Not because of a grand plan, but that's simply what was offered. And we discovered, and I wasn't surprised, we discovered that mixing vaccines actually is a very good thing to do. It's diversity. You're stimulating the immune system in multiple complementary ways. That turns out to be a good thing. So I think for people who are wrestling with this or are feeling concerned or anxious about it, the, the, the opportunity to get a third Pfizer shot is a good opportunity. It's a safe opportunity. There's no question. And it's really, really effective. It's been suggested that this is really a three-dose vaccine, and we're only just discovering that now, and I think that's a good way to think about this. What are your thoughts about the antiviral pill? Merck came out, and Britain is now the first country to approve a COVID-19 antiviral pill developed by Merck. Uh, And then Pfizer, pretty much the next day, comes out with uh, the claims that the experimental antiviral pill, and it's called Paxlovid, cuts the risk of hospitalization and death from COVID-19 by 89%. So we're not talking about prevention here. We're talking about treatment. Is that correct? 
We are, and I think that's really encouraging. I think we, the more tools we have to fight COVID, the better off we are. And there are some people who will not be vaccinated. There's some people who cannot be vaccinated because of allergies. And so to have this new tool in that case is fantastic. And if we can keep cases from getting serious enough to be hospitalized, then we can have a healthcare system that stops being stressed. So all that's really fantastic. But there's one thing that I worry about a bit. It doesn't make me it doesn't make me feel negative about these new drugs, but it may it may put a bit of a pause on people's willingness to get vaccinated. And I do think vaccination is superior. And the reason I say that is you really don't want to get COVID. You don't even want to get a mild case of COVID because we know that long COVID, which implies either autoimmune disease or brain damage or perhaps both, uh, doesn't actually depend on disease severity, especially in kids. So getting COVID means you're really rolling the dice in terms of long-term effects of the disease. So much better to be protected against getting it in the first place than to have a ready drug to prevent it from putting you in the hospital. But I, I, I won't say I won't say I wasn't happy. I was very happy to hear about new drugs, about new tools, because the more the better. Where do we go for information? You know, we hear about Health Canada their, and their approvals and pronouncements. We hear from NASTY from time to time, not as much as we were earlier in the summer. And we also hear from the government. So who are we to trust? Who are we to believe? That, I think, really, in a lot of ways, is a defining question of this pandemic. And it has to do with information overload. It has to do with misinformation. And, you know, misinformation comes from authoritative sources because the science is changing fast. The way we come to know and understand and communicate and learn really is predicated on knowledge advancing very slowly. We as a society and individuals do not cope well when the science and the understanding changes very, very quickly. It leads to confusion. It leads to loss of trust. And that's a long way of me saying, I don't have a clear answer. And I think that's part of what is causing a lot of trouble and a lot of misunderstanding is there isn't a clear answer to that question. Generally speaking, you want to look to what public health people are saying, although they're getting some things wrong, specifically around not acknowledging airborne, for example. So you want to look at that. You want to look at public health authorities elsewhere, what the CDC is saying, um, what Public Health England is saying. They do excellent measurements. They have taught us a lot. About, about how COVID behaves. And you want to look carefully at reputable news sources. Uh, and by that, I do not mean social media, but I mean news sources that are, that are actually holding governments to feet to the fire when there is a lack of transparency or when policy seems to be lacking. So to me, it's a, it's a mosaic or a composite of different places to look including looking directly at data if you have the training to do that. I'm fortunate that I do. Many don't. So there's lots of ways to look, and there isn't one uniform voice on this. And that's what's making this pandemic worse, I think. Next month, Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's Eve, these are times when people get together and may not uh, remember the restrictions or remember the guidelines. Uh, What are your thoughts about that in terms of a change in the case numbers as we move indoors because of bad weather, but also times of celebration where we are with family and friends. I have two words to how to deal with that effectively, and those two words are rapid tests. Mm-hmm. All we need to do is follow Nova Scotia's brilliant example, and Nova Scotia followed the example of other regions elsewhere that have done amazing job with rapid tests. It's like handing out condoms before a university party. It is exactly that, which is to say, you're going to have a good time. We know things are going to happen. We want you to play safe. 
And the idea behind rapid testing is if you're going to get together, especially multi-generational, right, uh, grandparents who are vulnerable and young children who are not vaccinated and are attending school, that's, that's a tinderbox. So let's test. I mean, this, this happened in our house at Thanksgiving. There was multi-generational, multi-generational gatherings, and we used rapid tests. I fortunately had access to some. I want everyone to have access to those, unmitigated access to rapid tests that you can do on your own. It's as simple as picking your nose and then a couple of droppers into a, into a little plastic device, and 10 minutes later, you know. It's reassuring. It's it's. Quite frankly, that's the way to do this. Let's enable people. Let's not tell them not to see family. Let's not tell them to be afraid. Let's tell them to be safe. It's like preaching abstinence versus providing condoms. The latter is going to work. Thank you for your thoughts. Your opinions always so interesting. Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor, faculty of information, University of Toronto. Really appreciate it, Colin. We'll talk again. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks. After the break, retail therapy, shop early, shop safe. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. It's all here, York Region. It's all in our own backyard. Jim Lang is our tour guide. Thrilled to be joined by Karen Wooten, who's the executive director for the Stovall Chamber of Commerce. And if you've been to Stovall lately, you know the kind of job she is doing. Uh, Karen, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Jim. Thanks for asking. It's it's great to see that Stovall, along with the other eight municipalities in the region, are sort of emerging from their pandemic cocoon. Business is coming back, and we're sort of rediscovering all that's great, especially in Stovall, and all it has to offer. Absolutely, Jim. You know, the nine uh, York Region Chambers and Boards of Trade have always had an alliance, um, and uh, we've always been very committed to the safety and well-being of not only the community, but the health and well-being of the businesses as well and the economic growth. And that's where the the relaunch of experienceyorkregion.com comes in because it's a way for York Region and the residents of Stovall and all the communities to rediscover and understand that there's so much right in our own backyard that sometimes we take it for granted. Absolutely. I think that there's a a lot that uh, we don't realize is right in our own backyard. You know, York Region is such a large and vast area, and it has such a diverse population as well as terrain. So there really is so much to see and do in York Region, and that's why we are launching the It's All Here campaign. You know, the York Region Chambers and Boards of Trade came together. We wanted to do extra to help out the business community and to also remind the residents in York Region of not only all there is to see and do, but uh, all the great shopping and dining experiences that are available as well. And that's something my wife and I have sort of taken to on the weekend is taking a drive through different areas of the region, uh, you know, getting a snack here and there. We do like our butter tarts or whatever it is. And you're like, there's so many quaint little cool places that have so much to offer. And it's, you could pick a different spot every weekend. Absolutely. You really don't need to travel far. We've got, uh, you know, whether you're looking for in the summertime, if you're looking to go to a beach 
go on a hiking trail, do zip lining, go on a wine tour, uh, ride a roller coaster, or take in an art gallery. Like, the experiences are all here. Speaking with Karen Wooten, the Executive Director of the Stobel Chamber of Commerce, talking about experienceyorkregion.com and the It's All Here campaign. And Karen, it's it's I, I think, you know, one thing we've realized is how lucky we are to live in the region. And it's a small thing, but when you, you support local business, when you get takeout at a local eatery, when you go to a local store, you're helping everyone, not just the business or yourself. That's true, you know, because we got to look at the fact that, uh, you know, the people that run, own and run the businesses, they've had their own challenges, but they also employ our neighbors, right? And they provide us with opportunities. Like if we didn't have the little quaint restaurants to go to, then, you know, we'd be eating at home and doing the dishes every night. Well, I mean, I know for my wife and I, we have two kids in university and their summer jobs are working at little places and different businesses in the region that help pays for their schooling. Absolutely. In order for a community to be healthy and strong, the businesses have to be healthy and strong as well. We, we, we see so much um, care and thought going into this It's All Here campaign. What can we do as listeners who are listening right now uh, to, to help support businesses, to do a little bit more, to make sure that everything thrives going ahead to 2022 and we're stronger, bigger, and better than ever in York Region? Well, you know, there's a, the chambers have, uh, have individual shop local programs that they're running throughout the next few months. Uh, residents can definitely go to the experienceyorkregion.com website. We've been using, we'll be driving traffic to that, and that's where we'll be launching most of the information through. Um, on that site, uh, you can see all there is, like we've done videos, so you can get reminded of all the things there are to see and do, as well as, you know, um, you know, shop locally, dine locally, and, you know, be patient. You know, there's been some staffing issues as well with restaurants. Uh, but you know what? Instead of going outside of the region, let's spend our money in the region. You know, a lot of people aren't exactly comfortable traveling. And, you know, you can have a pretty good staycation really close to home. A pretty good. I think you can have fantastic staycation pretty close to home, Karen. And one thing I've been trying to do is anytime I shop local or get some local takeout. I try to take a selfie in front of the establishment and post it just so people know. And I think everyone should do the same. So maybe someone in your social media feed goes, oh, that's a cool place in Stouffville or Richmond Hill. I didn't know about that. And they may frequent it. Absolutely. You know what? I think that there's there's a lot to be said for social media and sharing uh, the positive experiences that you have. I mean, I I know when I moved to the region, you know, 17, 18 years ago, I was just surprised at so much. And it's rich, not only in culture and diversity and the people that live here. Uh, I mean, there's international cuisine. You could eat yeah, going to essentially visit a country every night of the week, you know, and travel around the world through the meals that you have. Um, there's great uh, art museums and galleries and theater. And now that things are opening up again, I know that there are some people that are apprehensive, but, you know, slow and steady, let's, let's all get back out there. Let's uh, support our local attractions, uh, restaurants, shopping, and uh, make sure that uh, we all recover from this pandemic in a way that's going to take us forward into the future and in a constructive and positive manner.
Well said. It's the It's All Here campaign at experienceyorkregion.com. She is Karen Wooten, the executive director of the Stobel Chamber of Commerce, making a difference in the community and making sure businesses survive and thrive as we exit the pandemic. Karen, thank you so much for doing this and to continue great success and all the best to the rest of the year. Thank you so much, Jim, and thanks for having me. The holiday shopping season is upon us. Tina Cortez now with tips to find everything on your wish list. Now that Halloween is behind us, the holiday season, well, it's just around the corner, and the Retail Council of Canada has a few reminders. With the Shop Early Shop Safe details, Michelle Wasilishin from the RCC. Welcome to the feed, Michelle. Hello, thank you for having me. I would think that so many of us are looking forward to the pre-pandemic holiday traditions. I know I can't wait. What does it all mean, though, with loosening of capacity restrictions for consumers and retailers alike? I'm also looking forward to it. (laughs) Um, We recently completed our fourth annual holiday shopping survey. It's something that we do each year with Leger. And it showed that consumers are really more optimistic than they were last year and that they really just want to return to a more normal holiday celebration with holiday traditions. Um, We've got some changes this year that are obvious. We have more people being being vaccinated. We have stores that have had a lot of time to plan um, and to continue to adhere to the COVID safety protocols. And so I think what we're going to see this year is that consumers are going to be um, engaging in celebrations that resemble more pre-COVID activities for family get-togethers with family and friends and more physical shopping in stores. So those are the kind of changes that we are looking forward to. Quite a shift from last year when many of our stores, particularly in Ontario, were closed and we were being told to stay home by public health officials and to not celebrate with our families or to at least not celebrate in person. And what are store owners suggesting to consumers right now then? Well, certainly the best thing to do is to shop early and plan ahead. And so, um, you know, it's no um, surprise that we've been talking a couple for a couple of months now on supply chain challenges and labor shortages, which really go to show that as a retail industry, we are not back to pre-pandemic normality. And what this means is that in certain categories, there's going to be a little bit more difficulty than in years past in finding certain products. Now, we're not trying to say that the, you know, the, the shelves are obviously full of, of, of stock. You just have to go into a store to see that. But in some categories, um, there's going to be a little bit more of a difficult um, difficulty in finding some products because of those supply chain challenges. And so I'm talking about furniture, some bigger ticket items such as appliances, some seasonal accessories, some electronics, some toys. And so consumers really do, you know, it's best if they are flexible, if they're open-minded, if they're open to substitutes. Um, Consumers may need to look at a different model or brand. But if you really have something specific in mind, it's best that you plan ahead and shop early to really increase uh, your chance of finding the exact product and brand that you're looking for this holiday season. And are there sales to be had? Absolutely. Um, We know from our uh, holiday shopping survey that the busiest holiday shopping day, as in the past, will be Black Friday. 43% of consumers are planning to take advantage of sales that day. 
30% of our respondents are planning to begin their shopping even prior to that. Black Friday this year falls at the end of November, and our holiday shopping survey tells us that 30% um, of respondents, now that's from across Canada, are planning to begin their holiday shopping in early November, so really right now. And advice for those who choose to shop online, perhaps even on Cyber Monday? Uh, well, advice is that um, online shopping is going to remain popular this year, but many of the consumers that we saw uh, in our survey are really um, also planning to return to store. So there's a couple of things that I think they missed from last year, um, touching and seeing those products, getting gift ideas, and just really experiencing the festive feeling that in-shopping, in-store shopping uh, inspires. And so certainly online shopping is going to be important um, and it does continue to grow. But I think we'll see this year that people really want to return to in-store shopping as well to really fully enjoy um, what, what the season is all about. And how are the brick-and-mortar stores managing in terms of staffing? Well, we know that we do continue to have some labor challenges. We've had labor challenges now since really the beginning of the summer. We understand that it's going to take some time for the market uh, to settle. Um, certainly, you know, some of the challenges began earlier in the year. Um, if you look at a province like Ontario that had big parts of the retail economy shut down for, I think we were at 150 days in Ontario, really quite astronomical so businesses had to cope with a significant loss of experienced staff. Uh, in many of cases, those employees also needed to find alternative forms of work in other industries. And so some of them have not returned to the retail sector once it opened. Um, the other um, um, factors that played a role, um, the lack of immigration and temporary foreign students, that also had an impact. So retailers are, you know, continuing to focus on hiring, um, especially the hiring of experienced people. In some cases, they have had to look at their compensation packages. They have had to offer a new range of incentives and perks. Really, there's a lot of competition out there right now, as many sectors, um, you know, um, hire. And um, um, it's a, so we've, we've really seen um, some challenges. Michelle, where can listeners find a full list of consumer tips for this time of year? Well, our Shop Early, Shop Safe campaign is on our website. Um, but uh, really, it's, it's um, you know, just get out there and make your list. And those who shop early will have the best chance of finding the exact products that they want. It's a little bit different than last year because, again, some public health authorities last year were saying to shop alone, to not bring your families. None of those recommendations are in place. And so we are, you know, expecting that that um, there's um, returning to in-person shopping in stores is certainly safe. Uh, retailers have spent a lot of time over the past year putting in place um, different um, mechanisms and procedures to ensure that it's safe, not only for customers, but for their employees as well. So, um, you know, there's there's really uh, an abundance of tips, but a lot of it is just common sense, and it's really our new normal. I think we're all adjusting to how to keep ourselves safe when we go out and about and do our daily business. Shop early, shop safe. Michelle, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, Vaughn is winter ready. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. 
Welcome back. Remembrance Day was this past Thursday. The city of Vaughan showed its support and respect for those who fought bravely in past wars to make this world a better, safer, more peaceful place in which to live. Vaughan Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua is with us now on the feed to remember the past and to look forward to the future. Welcome to the show, Mayor Bevilacqua. Great to participate. It's a great, uh, great show to get very important information out uh, out to the public, and you play a very important role in making sure that people are kept up to date with everything that truly matters here in the city of Vaughan. And Remembrance Day certainly matters to a lot of people. Now, it is, it's now a few days behind us. It was Thursday, November the 11th, and a, and a really important day for many, many generations. Tell me what Vaughn has done to embrace this very special day. I think it's very important. Now we take it's very easy to take things like you know freedom for granted, and uh, it's important to remember that people literally made the ultimate sacrifice by losing their own lives for freedom. And it's uh, it's a day that I really spend a lot of time contemplating, meditating, and uh, and about you know the importance the importance of this day and. and to always remind ourselves that uh, we need to be vigilant, we need to safeguard uh, these uh, these values, principles, and beliefs that make us live in an open and democratic uh, society where people do experience freedom, the ability to vote, and everything, you know, the rule of law, human rights. Uh, this is something that we have to um, really hold on tight to. And, and you know, the, we, we celebrated it uh, in, and we commemorated the day. Uh, you know, we, we were fortunate to be joined by Sergeant Natalie Defoe and Warrant Officer Wally Mohammed, who delivered uh, very moving and meaningful remarks and enjoyed a special performance by Lieutenant Jeremy Williams. Uh, we also uh, had this uh, virtual Remembrance Day exhibit called Bonds Forgotten Heroes and Stories of Remembrance, which uh, showcased deeply personal war artifacts. Uh, this is all part and parcel of uh, who we are uh, as people, and and to remind people that uh, ultimately we we need to remember, and uh, we, you could also look at bond.ca uh, slash Remembrance Day until Friday, November twenty sixth, uh, to to really take a bit of time to to reflect and contemplate, lest we forget, and we all think back to what sacrifices were made and how it shaped the way we live today. And now let's look forward, shall we? The Vaughn Ramla Summit, it will take place virtually on Tuesday, November the 23rd. This is a really great idea, and it's a partnership that began, I believe, in, in 2019. That's correct. Uh, since, uh, since 1993, Vaughn has maintained an international partnership with the Israeli city of uh, Ramla. And in June 2019, as you correctly point out, I wrote to the mayor, uh, Michael Vial of Ramla, Israel, outlining my desire to continue, reaffirm, and modernize uh, the Vaughn Ramblad relationship. Uh, it's, uh, we signed an MOU, which commits our municipalities to develop a comprehensive four year action plan that advances cultural opportunities between our cities, uh, including uh, the the real willingness to maintain this renewed partnership. Now, two years later, I look forward uh, to participating in 2021 Vaughn Ramblad which is taking place virtually on Tuesday, November 23rd from 10.30 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. and is being organized, obviously, by the city of Vaughan in partnership with the city of uh, Ramla. And the purpose of this summit is to, you know, uh, discuss uh, 
combating anti-Semitism and racism and encouraging interfaith dialogue, tourism, education, thought leadership, economic and cultural development, intergovernmental relations. This is uh, part of the process of uh, developing an action plan for Bonn-Israel relations that will uh, be council approved by 2023, which marks the 30th anniversary of the Von Ramla MOU partnership. So these are the things that, although we act locally, uh, we have to think globally. And uh, to me, that's very important. And what, I look forward to this event. And, and Mayor Bevilacqua, what have you learned personally and as the mayor of Vaughn through the summit and through the partnership with Ramla? Well, listen. We all face uh, different challenges. Uh, that uh, that there that you know we have to share best practices. That we uh, that you know when in the issue of combating anti-Semitism, racism, and encouraging interfaith dialogue, you're really getting to the spirit and the core of relationships. Um, there's of course an economic uh, side to this as well, but mostly uh, we we're learning from each other, each other's experiences. I think that. That type of knowledge uh, makes uh, makes the relationship more meaningful, and it also makes uh, makes dealing with uh, the uh, the relationship with the communities in in this uh, much more important. And, and I think that knowledge is power in this case. And the summit, as you mentioned, Tuesday, November twenty third at twelve forty five. Can the citizens of Vaughan partake in this? Yes, there's. Uh, you can. You're, everything obviously is found through bond.ca, and uh, that's the best route to to access information related to uh, this uh, this summit. This was fun for me. In my email box last week, it came something quite amazing with a headline: "The city of Vaughn is winter ready." <laughs> I don't think any of us is ever ready for winter, but you certainly are when it comes to maintenance and the programs in, involved. So, you are saying that the city of Vaughn is ready when it comes to salting, windrow cleaning, plowing, snow removal, more than. 2,000 lane kilometers of roads. Here's what really struck me. There's artificial intelligence involved in this, the technology known as the Maintenance Decision Support System. Can you elaborate? Yeah, well, the, we, we leverage uh, weather forecast data from actual road conditions and Vaughn's operating best practices to recommend, uh, recommend treatment uh, for the city's roads and, and, and sidewalks. So we're well equipped to do that. We gather information as we as our uh, travel around the city, and that gets fed into the system. And based on that, we make uh, we make uh, decisions. But you correctly pointed out. I mean, it's uh, it's a big operation of snow plowing, of salting, of the windrow uh, clearing. It's um, it's it's quite something to see because uh, when you when you you know the snow uh, the snow falls, uh, and sometimes uh, you know there are also icy conditions, and we try to predict when and if they're occurring. And you have to have, you know, the, the, the road salted. And, and people sometimes, you know, when you, you're driving on a, on a clear road, uh, people ought to remember it doesn't get done on its own. There's a lot of people yeah. working now. We're trying to improve the technology so we provide uh, better services. But uh, like I often say, people that work you know, in the public works department, if you have this limb of love, sure that people are safe, that conditions are, are maintained uh, in a way that... Uh, Best facilitates uh, the free movement of, of vehicles uh, uh, throughout uh, throughout the city. I'm very proud of the, of the work they do because they really care, and uh, and the, you know the evidence is uh, is 
for everybody to see when you're on a, a road that is being cleared. Uh, somebody did that for you. And everything costs money that you've been talking about. So that brings us to the 2022 budget. It's being developed and also the 2023 to 2026 capital plan. You're looking for citizen involvement, three electronic participation public meetings coming up next month. Tell me about that. Well, we have a special committee of the whole on Wednesday, December 1st, uh, 7 p.m., Tuesday, December 7th at 7 p.m., Thursday, December 9th at, at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, people can uh, register with the clerk if they want to participate and, you know, have their say in reference to how they feel uh, our uh, tax, hard-earned taxpayers' dollars ought to be ought to be um, managed. And it's we always welcome uh, their input. They, they give us sound advice. And uh, any good ideas, obviously, we will we will act upon. You know, we'll try to do the best I can. When I became mayor, I, I committed to that uh, the city of Vaughan would never exceed uh, 3%. As a matter of fact, last year, it was 0% tax increase, given, you know, the challenges that people are facing with COVID. Um, I'm obviously, once again, fighting for low taxes, uh, because I do think that these are challenging times for everybody and everybody. Uh, need some help along the way, and if if a tax uh, uh, keep taxes low will help people, well then then we should all focus uh, uh, on that because uh, you know we have to demonstrate uh, very in a very clear way as we have uh, over a number of decades that uh, you have to be fiscally responsible while providing value for citizens' hard earned tax dollars, and that to me is uh, is how I view it. Every time I see people uh, at a bus stop, um, you know, uh, going to work, uh, I remember that person very, very vividly uh, throughout the, the budget process because that person is paying taxes and uh, is harder and her harder tax dollar needs to be respected. And uh, that's been what we've done, been doing since 2010, since I became mayor. I fought for tax cuts throughout uh, the, the past 11 years because I do believe that the people... Uh, need to pay the lowest amount of taxes with one 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 caveat, and that we can't really reduce the level of service. We have to continue providing excellence in service as we have for many decades here in the city of Boston. Low taxes and excellent service and also respect for your citizens. It seems to be all-encompassing, and it seems to be what you are about. Mayor Bevilacqua, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. I look forward to chatting with you next month. Thank you so much, Anne, and stay safe. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.